Hello and welcome to another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. And today I'm back again in the Signet area and it seems quite appropriate today because the Signet, Signet was named by French explorers back in the 18th century. In fact, the whole Huon area here is full of French names. And so it's very appropriate that I should be interviewing someone from France, uh, Catherine. So thank you very much, Catherine, for agreeing to talk to me. First easy question, how long have you been living in Tasmania? Nine years. And ha uh, what were the reasons for you coming here in the first place? What were the circumstances? It wasn't really planned. Uh, we were living in Western Australia. My husband was a ship's captain and he had to do a very specialised course, which he did in the Maritime College in Manchester. There were two places he could do it. One was Singapore and we'd been there before to do another course or Manchester. So, and I always was attracted by Tasmania. I don't know why. I just wanted to go and see Tasmania. So he said, you're going to be happy. You're going to Tasmania. We take, you can do some touring while I'm studying, and then we take an extra week and travel. And we fell in love with Tasmania. It felt very European to us. I love the mainland. I love the bush. I, um, we traveled through, through the continent from Cairns to Fremantle. So I experienced what it's the size and the spiritual life of Australia in the bush, in the center, on that is in the pile. It is just amazing. I love the sound of the birds, but that's all that is really exotic to me. And I came here and I felt, it, when I closed my eyes, the birds sang the same songs as where I come from, which mm -hmm. is Normandy, near Giverny. And you had lilac there and snowballs and... <laughs> Apart from the eucalyptus and the old cucumbers, you know, it was a smell of cows. This country, this where all the cheeses come from, the camembert, that's Normandy. So we have apples and cows. And I wasn't, I didn't analyze it at the time. It just felt really familiar. So we fell in love with it. And uh, we were at an age where Bob was thinking of retiring at some stage. And uh, we were renting because we lived in different we lived, we, we lived in different places, and because of his profession, we moved around, and we, just, we were looking for a place to stop and retire, eventually. So we came back. We told the children that we were going to move to Tasmania. They said, okay, if we go, we go too. And so that means four out of our five grandchildren, two of the girls, were going to move with us. Well, not with us, but at the same time as us. I am a cancer survivor, so I wanted to be close to a hospital. I wanted to study at the university, and one of our daughters was work, going to work in Hobart. She was transferred, so we didn't want to be more than an hour away from Hobart. So I did some research for a year, and I picked Signet because of the diversity of the community, because it was a safe place, a good community to bring up little kids. I tapped my back every day for having done that yeah. because it was just perfect. We moved in 2001, no, 2011, and uh, that's about that time where Mona was starting to happen or just had happened, which completely changed the artistic landscape of Tasmania because people were saying to me, you're a Parisian, you're going to go there and some people are going to have people with two heads and stuff. And so I, I forgot my gut, but what was really interesting is that I did a fine arts degree at Cheetahs, which I finished three years ago almost. And <laughs> what I was learning there in the art school was more forward thinking than anything that I've seen in, <laughs> in Australia before. It was really avant-garde. I was born in Egypt, mm -hmm. 
cad and just a few kilometres away from there. And so what kind of place? And that's where you were, were raised and brought up? In Paris. Okay. Which is 70, it's only 70 kilometres away from Paris. But my grandparents lived there. My grandfather was a teacher in that village and they had a hobby farm, which means that I'm very familiar with the country as well, you know, and the way people think in the country. It's like, you know, if you haven't gone back four generations, you blow in. <laughs> you know, yeah. so for for, for the, the the real rural people, you know. So I was born there, and we used to go there on each weekend and on holidays and whatever. Which just, and also, I did a year schooling there when I was little. So I go back to my parents. My parents met during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. My grandfather, the teacher, was a resistant, and my father, who comes from Morocco was in England with the goal and was parachuted or near the house yeah, I was wow. born in. Uh, and my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was hiding in during the war. So that's how my parents met during the war. And my parents had a very, very passionate, intense relationship. And then they were fighting as well for the liberation of Algeria in Paris. Mm-hmm. The, during the Algerian war, there was a war in Paris as well. Mm-hmm. Here, most people are not aware it is not part of the history, but people were being killed in Paris, thrown in the river. My f- parents were very engaged. My father came from a noble Moroccan family, and the king of Morocco asked all the heads of the family to help their Algerian brothers to free themselves from the French literature, you know. So during that year, we realized it was very bloody, yeah. it was horrible, and it was also the case in France, and we were right in the heart of it. So during that year, we were sent to the country. One of the years, we were sent to the country with my grandparents to be safe because we had a f- fire started in our apartment. We had uh, My parents had a hotel restaurant uh, in the heart of Paris. We used mm-hmm. blood, uh, fights, um, all sorts of things happening there. And so... One of the school years I, I spent there. We all, you know, during it, it, it was a school where all the grades were taught together. Yeah. You know, one of these really old-fashioned schools, like with a little there's a wooden desk that you see uh, and the ink. And uh, my, in my grandparents' house, which is my sister's house, there are still some of these. You know, there like, it's like a museum, like what you mm. call here museums. You know, which is all for you. This is for us. It's part of our family history. You know, with everything. My first how I learned to to write. My grand Father used to, we had the lines, and you know, avec, I don't know what it's in English, les pleins et les déliés. So the fool and the sin in the, in the French script, you know, for hours and hours. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, so this is my connection to, to the country. As a child and, and growing up in, in Paris, what, what kind of childhood was it for you? Like what, what were your parents doing at the time? My parents did a lot of different things. Uh, my father was a businessman, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, at one stage they had some tax. My mother was a school teacher. I, from my mother's side, I come from eight generations of school teachers. My mother was a rebel. And uh, she stopped becoming, she married my father and she stopped teaching. They, they were in business together. So my father was arrested during the war. That's really relevant to his to their professional life. So my father was arrested during the war. He was prisoner of war. He was arrested by the German. And he was tortured for 18 months and he didn't give any names. Mm-hmm. And he was it, it's a miracle that we're here because it's a miracle that he's alive because he was going to get shot a couple of days after the liberation of Paris. 
So he was, you know. Mm. So after the war, my father had huge, huge political power. Yeah, he knew people in, in you know, in places of power, in, in the police, in the in governments, and everything. And he was able, because being Moroccan, he was able also to provide papers for family from Morocco or people who were sent to him, which everybody owed him a favor, you know. Mm. I had a friend who used to call him the godfather. <laughs> he had a lot of political power. And he was um, very altruistic, you know, altruistic as well. My, both of my parents had taught us, you know, that you should share and get engaged in what you believe in. And they had very strong values. They had different political, they voted differently. Because my father voted for De Gaulle, which mm-hmm. most Arabs did because, you know, he had, he had the liberation of Paris and he was there with him in London. And my mother was voting for Mondes France, which was a leading, inspiring man from the left. But they had similar covers, certainly sharing. I don't know if you've had anything to do with people from the Middle East, but this sense of sharing, like you can come and the first thing I asked you, do you want something you know, to eat or drink or, you know, or you can always have a place to stay. So that sense of sharing solidarity and helping people out, you know, give it, help it. so it helped a lot of people. So at one stage, so this was relevant in his business life because he was, it was at one stage they had taxis, they were ta- driving taxis mm-hmm. and then they sold that and then you know, he had the possibility to, to leave this amazing building in Rue Mouffetard, which is a beautiful street in Paris, right on the top of the Montagne Saint-Geneviève, which is, you know, it's people who've gone to Paris have gone to Mouffetard. It's just full of restaurants. It's really, really beautiful. Well, like lots of, so with like lots of parts of Paris, it's really old and beautiful. Mm. So that's really the heart of Paris. So he had the opportunity through people he knew and whatever to, to lease that building for, for whatever, for work. Very long lead for he could have had it as long as he wanted. So they had this hotel, restaurant, bar, cafe in Mufta for years and years and years. And during the Algerian war, we had bombs thrown there. We had police coming down, and my mother with guns in her pocket. And, you know, it was pretty intense. Mm-hmm. The police coming and lifting everything up because they were looking for people who were, you know, trying to for the liberation of Morocco, and um, so all that. So that's when we were sent to the country too. To go to school. And so, I mean, it sounds like that that period in Paris was quite a period of turmoil and, yeah, and, and, and change. And did that sort of, uh, uh, did you sort of look, and I know I'm asking you to look back a bit here, but do you think that um, what sort of influence did that have on you as a growing up as a child or a teenager? I felt extremely responsible for my brother and sister. Mm-hmm. That that was an important thing, and also this um, during that period around, and after there was a, a French the May '68 revolution mm. in Paris. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my parents were going through a divorce, so that had lasted for three yeah, or four right. years. The influence that it had on me—I was born as a very old soul, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started practicing yoga when I was 13 years of age, as well as dance, because I love body work. And, yeah. you know, it's, what kept me sane was that, <laughs> you know. I, I grew up very quickly, and also I, I had a very old soul anyway, which I still do have, <laughs> which is getting younger and younger as I grow. 
younger in my way of looking at the world, but that the, the old soul is there. Yeah, so it had this influence on me of being extremely responsible at very early age. And when my parents were going through that divorce, and sometimes my father was just about to get violent with my mother, I was I would be in the middle of mm. it, you know, with my giving the black eye, which is a killer. Never get me angry, Mark, mm. because a black eye kills. <laughs> mm. I remember one day my father was about to raise was raising his hand, and I went and, and, and looked at him with my black eye and went like this, you know. So yeah, very very, you know, between the war and very protective and mm. motherly and. Um, and yoga and dance were places mm. for me which were expression because I was doing a lot of modern dancing at the stage yeah. and also classical. And uh, my first yoga teacher was an ex-ballet teacher. So I was learning yoga and dance with her. So that channeled a lot of physical and spiritual energy, which was very, very useful for my mental health. Mm. Um, so how did you discover yoga or did... So my mother, my mother had a very rich uh, intelligence. She was part of the French avant-garde intelligentsia, and um, she she knew my yoga teacher. I met her through. She'd spoken to both of us about each other. One summer solstice, so there was big, we do big bonfires in France, twenty first of June. We met there, and it was like you know we'd known each other before. So she could see what was going on. She took me under her wing. She became like a second mother to me in a way, and I was I was going every day. Yeah. And so that yoga has been part of your life ever since. Yeah, yeah, on and off in different with different intensity, but it's a huge part of my life. And then in '68, I went to England because I, it was a revolution. I, I'd fallen in love with my first husband, and I was trying to go to England, and there was no petrol, no nothing. <laughs> <laughs> to wait until we... <laughs> so all of this is pretty intense and you know like wars and revolutions and I didn't have a she'll be right made uh, let's let's go fishing kind of childhood <laughs> you know not at all and from very early on in the picture because of all this and because of my old soul and because of the work I was doing with my yoga and my dance and I've always loved learning as well I've learned all my life I'm a teacher and a learner and I, I learn every day and I love, I love to share knowledge so I was able to get through this really well I, I guess I was holding the space I still do in this period now where so much upheaval is taking place in so many different levels worldwide in that long time, but it's become so obvious to me that my space, my place in this world is to hold the space a lot of the time. You know, so to do the work, internal work, I've had a lot of challenges in my life, which I've traversed, and every time I came out stronger, more peaceful. And so I am a peacemaker. I am a facilitator of communication. I've done a lot of work in my life and now I don't have to do anything. I just have to be. Mm-hmm. And my very presence is helpful to people. I help people and my community just by being myself. I don't have to do anything special. When you were leaving school or near there, how did, how did you see your future at that time? I wanted to be a GP, which in other ways I've done in a different way. I've worked in medical work with my yoga for years. and So my studies were interrupted by the May 68 revolution and the fact that I fell in love with my first husband and I left, I went to England. I always loved languages. I had a classical education. I studied Latin, Greek and German at school. 
and I love languages. So I went to England with a grammar book, which is not very common here. People don't use grammar, but I love grammar because it's yeah. structure of the language. And uh, six months after I was in England, I spoke English. <laughs> so I got married in England and my three daughters in England. And I studied English and did little job that so taught a bit of French. I made some jewelry, I made some cats, I mean, you know, I, I just did a bit of artisanal work and you know, little jobs, nothing terribly interesting professionally there. And then in 71, we moved to Mallorca, to Spain, my, husband, my first husband and I. His brother and companion, he, he was homosexual, so it was a couple of homosexuals, and they had hair salons, and they wanted to start an English pub in Mallorca. So we went there, and we started this business venture with my father-in-law and his companion. And then our marriage fell apart. Mm. So I came back to France in 1974, and I started to study again. And this time I studied uh, Japanese. <laughs> yeah. I, I did my... Um, the equivalent of the baccalaureate, which I couldn't pass in 68. I should have passed it in 68. And so I did that, and I went to the Oriental Language School in Paris. And I found a job in a large department store called the Galleries Lafayette, one of the beautiful mm -hmm. ones, as a part-time interpreter. So I published my German and my Spanish and my English and decided to study some Japanese. Um, but I didn't finish that study either because I had three kids. and I, So I was working as interpreter, and my ex-yoga teacher wanted an assistant, so I started teaching with her. So I did that for a few years, and then she started to become jealous of me, which was awful. Yeah. <laughs> so I looked for another teacher. I didn't want to be in any rivalry with her or anything, so I just left gracefully. And um, I looked for another teacher. I was taking a yoga class with a teacher, and she said to me, I have nothing to teach you. Go and see this man. So I went and saw this man, which was called Jack Thibault, which was a man who, um, who had an interesting life. And uh, so I, I worked with him for 18 years. Uh, and I was going to just follow up my language skills, and yoga followed me. So when I was the assistant of my first teacher, I used to teach in uh, various places. And um, a few people just... She, they, Light found a way to find me. So some of them found me through the Gary's Lafayette. Some of them said they had some books. They wanted to give back to me. So I started teaching with six people. <laughs> and it just grew from there. <laughs> so I still had the, I was still a partner in that bar, in uh, that pub in Mallorca. Still there? No, I was still when I was in France. So at one stage there was some problem there. So I went and I went there for a couple of months, and that's where I met my second husband. He walked up to the pub, and it was closed. <laughs> of course, being English, he wanted a uh, he wanted a beer. And I was with my daughters they were outside that pub, and I didn't have the key yeah. <laughs> to open. So, he, so we started chatting. That's how I met him. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, if somebody had told me that this, at the time, he was, he was a naval officer. He was a submarine, ex-submariner. He'd gone through a divorce himself, yeah. and he was taking a sabbatical year. He was barefoot. He had long hair with a tie, and he looked so hippish <laughs> or whatever. And I looked at him and never took him seriously, never. Right. If somebody had told me you spent 40 years of your life with this man and you'll end up in Tasmania, I would have laughed at them. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what happened. 
1993, I realized I had to let Bob go. He had, he had his internal rules. He had to come back to Australia. My work was so interesting. I was right on top of my profession. I, was, I used to teach in the castle because one of my students were, was inherited, or her husband had inherited the castle, which was falling apart. She was an architect and he was a lawyer. And she, she said to me, I've got this castle. That was 89 again. You know, I want, we need some money. Do you want to come and teach seminars there? So, so I did that for 20 years, including some of the years I was in Australia. Next to this castle, there was a, the priest house, a presbytery, presbytery. And Bob was on the roof of that presbytery. And he just fell. Bob was an athlete. You know, he was a rugby player, a squash player, a surf life player. He fell down. There was a man who was helping him who almost fainted. That was typical of Bob. He got up and he helped the man. He was about to faint. Mm-hmm. That was an alarm call for me. I said, I've got to let him go. You know, for me, that was an alarm. Because he never fell. He was like a, a monkey. He would climb everywhere. So I said, no. So I, so we, I let him go back to Australia. And uh, I said, look, um, I was very committed. I couldn't go with him. And he had to organize himself. And uh, I went to Australia in 94. He left. In January, I went in after my teaching, my seminar. And I took a sabbatical. Could year, ninety four, and I'm still here. Yeah, <laughs> but so you went to was it Western Australia? You said you went. To? No, we start. Well, first we went to Sydney because his family was in Sydney for just for a little while. Then we went to Brisbane because he wanted to restudy. He had, he had, he, you can imagine his profession. He hadn't been a ship's master for years, and he, he, when he came back here, he thought Australia was waiting for him because he'd been. He, he was very. Clever, he was a second in command of submarine when he was 24, a sportsman, whatever. And he arrived there, but Australia wasn't waiting for him. So he sent God knows how many, and he'd worked for BNP at one stage, creating programs. Australia wasn't waiting for him, he'd been out. He had to repass, he had to <laughs> repass his driving license, which he missed the first time, because I don't know what he did. So it was a reality check for him. Eventually, he said, I've got to get back to my profession as a ship's master. So he restudied and did that in Brisbane. I found myself, I arrived there, and so we went, we stayed there for a year or something. And he said, Oh, there is a deckhand course. You should, perhaps you should go and have a look at it because we might do something together in tourism at some stage. So I went to university that day looking for that course. The next thing I knew, I was sitting in this room with 25 guys <laughs> studying it. <laughs> It was really interesting because it touched on everything that a ship's master has to do, which gave me a real understanding of the complexity and the responsibility of this job. We ended up not working on a boat together, but... (laughs) And then we moved to Cairns because he had a job there. He worked uh, in uh, taking people on the Great Barrier Reef, not in the the Coral Sea, actually. There were five days expeditions Mm -hmm. there. So once again, he said to me, oh, there is a really interesting course for you. So it's a um, heritage guide course. So I studied there, which was, I remember crying my eyes out. It was a very intensive one-year course to, be, course to become a heritage guide in Cairns, which was really interesting because it gave me some cultural bearings about Australia, mm-hmm. historical and cultural and and studied the flora and the fauna but it was a huge thing and I am I was used to learning very thoroughly you know and I thought I would never I would take in too long I was going in depth into things and Bob helped me a lot in showing me how to do it and you know so anyway I pulled through it and I got to work very quickly they came to pick me up because when, when I study I study so I was very I became very good at it and uh, some of the people who were doing guiding, they came and asked me for if I wanted to work. So I started to work there and then 
when at that stage Bob was driving a huge the, the Golden Plover, a huge sailing boat up there. Mm-hmm. And he met somebody on that boat that worked in the offshore industry. He came home and he spoke to me about I said, this is what's happening. Uh, I think it will be good if I, uh, I'm going nowhere fast uh, in this you know, marine area. I think it would be a good thing if I went to Western Australia and got back into the union and see if I could work offshore. So I said, okay, let's go. Because I knew I, I didn't come here to start a career. I came here to follow him to... Mm-hmm give him a chance to to keep, pick up his own career. So that's what we did. So when we were in France, he said to me, I hope one day I can travel through Australia with you. So we did that. We took that opportunity. We took three and a half months to go from Cairns to Fremantle. Mm-hmm. It was fabulous. We had very little money. We had an old Corona tent. <laughs> Stopped whenever we felt like it. And I, it made me understand so much about Australia. You know, seeing the horizon on the on land and these huge spaces and we stopped in, you know, in all this. Yeah, could we spend a few a week in Mount Isa, a week in Cooper Beatty, uh, so, you know, we just did all sorts of things that were just so far away from Paris. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what were your first impressions of Australia actually? My two first impressions of Australia, being an artist because I'm an artist as well, the blue, the, the blue of the sky. And the smell of the eucalyptus leaves. When I first came here, it was in 89. We came to visit first before we came here. It was in 89. So I, I'm looking at this fabulous shape and the colors of these gum trees and the light, the light. And I kept, I was always sniffing eucalyptus leaves. I used to break them and just go like this. Okay, so that's first, literally almost when I was coming out of the airport. That's my first, wow, you know. And then I was a bit culturally because I looked at it. I was... For me, that was very much like America. Made me think of this, of, and I don't like American culture. I don't like what comes out of American culture. I really don't, and more and more so. So it looked really American, so different from our little, little, little villages. And the first day I was invited to a barbecue. <laughs> we went, we went to, <laughs> it was around Christmas the first time I came. We were invited to Bob's elder sisters for Christmas. So then nice house and pool and garage and very, you know, suburbia, Sydney suburbia. And so they had a nice plate of food. And the next thing I know, everybody's in the garage sitting down mm-hmm. <laughs> with fishing rods and, you know, so the men started and everybody came and then women were drinking beer out of the bottle and, well, not, not the, actually not my sister, you know, who's very sophisticated, she was having wine in a stepped glass, but their son and daughters and whatever. And I looked, I was so shocked and now I do it all the time. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, if I feel like a beer, I want it to be really cold, yeah. you know, <laughs> and I do it. I feel so good about it because I am not comparing, I'm not, I, I drink very reasonably. You know, I, I don't drink any spirits, I don't drink all the time. But if I feel like a cold beer, I will drink it either in a really cold glass mm-hmm. or in a cold beer bottle. Yeah. And it doesn't bother me at all. And I can, I'm still myself and I'm still a sophisticated French lady. <laughs> it doesn't change a thing. But when I first came here, I was so shocked by it. I said, my God, could I live in a country like that? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's a little bit of a reflection of your own cultural baggage. Of course. Well, because I came from a whole different cultural space. So, mm. so you asked me what I saw first. So I saw these huge cultural differences. And and I realized more and more the more I live here. When you go to India, 
so clear that you come from France, you go to India. I mean, you, you know you are in a different culture, especially because I lived in England as well. Coming here, it looked really culturally different to me. But it's not as obvious because we're white, speak English, whatever, you know. So the cultural differences between French, France and Australia are huge. Mm-hmm. Huge. As big as between India and France, even if they don't yeah. look in the same Perhaps I'm exaggerating a little bit. I probably am exaggerating because they're not as big, but they are huge. I'm still trying to understand the complexity of this country. There are some very sophisticated people here. There are some very well-read people here. There is a culture here. But when we first come, I had a cultural shock mm. about the lack of, what appeared to me to be the lack of sophistication, in my, you know? And then now I love it because what well, I don't I don't love I don't love anything that is violent or rude or I don't like that. <laughs> when somebody calls me mate, I'm still surprised because I'm especially the man the other day called me cobbler. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> what was interesting is that it surprised me, but it did offend me. And at the beginning, when people called me mate, I found it it sort of offended me. I was shocked by it because I really was didn't understand exactly and I didn't understand, you know, and I'm a lady. I'm not a mate. Well, I'm a, I can be a mate too, but I'm not used to it. Culturally, I was not used to it. But now, now it, I, I take it for where it comes from, you know. Mm. So, so, so just to tell you that after having lived there now for 26 years, I understand more and more. Uh, where people are coming from. And this is what I've tried to do in my life. I've always tried to understand. To go back to what you said about there being some really huge cultural differences between France and Australia, what are some other examples of that? The word Polish comes to me immediately. Not as Polish. It's more what you see is what you get. You know? So there are two sides. And um, less sophistication. And of course, there are sophisticated people here too, of course. But generally speaking, you know, in France, it's valued to be learned, to be learned and to be, it's valued to be an artist, it's valued to be cultured. Here it's not, mm. generally speaking. The majority of people don't value it as much as being a sports person. For, that's my perception of it anyway. So you were in Western Australia. Yep. Followed because of your husband's job. Yeah. Skipping forward a bit, then what were the, what were the sort of circumstances that sort of led to the move to Tasmania? I was always attracted by Tasmania to go for a holiday there. I never thought we were going to live there, and we fell in love with it. So Bob was flying out, so he could live anywhere. I was free. I was involved professionally. I used to go France and teach a couple of months a year. So we just—it was incidental, really. I was attracted by it. We came in. We, we hadn't bought a house, we'd been renting, and we wanted to buy a house to eventually retire, you know, finish our old day somewhere. And being able to travel and you know, something that wasn't too complicated, we wanted to go on to start a property with animals, we wanted to be easy. Close my eyes, the birds sing the same songs. <laughs> when I close my eyes in the bush in the mainland, they sing a very exotic song. <laughs> When I open my eyes, I see cows and apple trees and <laughs> lilac and snowballs, which I'd never seen in Australia, among other things, of course, but things that are so similar to my childhood, these, these kind of trees, these flowers, which just, I've never met them anywhere else where I lived before. It was all tropical and ex- very exotic to me. And this feels very much like home, basically. And uh, the size of it, you know, it's much smaller, it's greener. Um, 
It's it's not these great big wide open spaces which yeah. which I love. You know, I just love. I mean, it's whole different things. So yes, yeah, so it was a mixture of things. So Bob was still working; he wanted to work a lot longer, but it didn't happen that way. But it, it could continue working from here. So mm. you know, we didn't have the problem of income. So he, he did this type this course in Lancaster at the Maritime College. Uh, and we toured around and we said, really, would we? it's really nice, we'd like to live here. So we came back. I, I followed the same pattern health-wise than my mother, but I'm still alive. My mother had breast cancer when she was 45, and then she died from ovarian cancer a few years later when she was 64, so 10 years later. And I followed the same pattern. So mm-hmm. when I was 45, I had breast cancer. I, I've always been very, very proactive in my, in my health, so it was found very early. So I um, just uh, just removed the cancer, and but it, was, it had already started to go in my lymph nodes. So they did actually uh, clearance there. I was very very peaceful about that. I had the surgery, and then we went for a trip with Bob to KDNG National Park in near Newman there because I'd not been up there to get better. And then after he went back to work, it stopped five years later. Came back from uh, France in 2008 and been teaching and had to sort out our apartment to get rid of it. And my first husband died, so I'd gone to London to his funeral with my eldest daughter. And I came back and I did my usual checkup. And I was, I was at this stage, I was getting tennis scans every year as well as breast screens. And the wonderful, wonderful Marilyn. The doctor that took care of me said, oh, your ovaries with swollen, you should check and whatever. Anyway, they looked in and I had uh, metastatic breast cancer on one ovary and uh, fallopian tube mm-hmm. cancer on the second one. Grade three, stage three, pretty bad stuff. I contemplated all sorts of things um, and Bob was very, very helpful to me. It was wonderful. He stopped working for a year. Uh, you really accepted my choices, but he was smart enough to make me think that perhaps I had lots of reasons to leave. Uh, that was, and I realized, and I knew that there was no serious other options than chemotherapy. I couldn't go through the chemotherapy because I thought it was going to kill me. So I did a whole internal work, and I took the time necessary to see it as something that was going to heal me. Because it's a very, it was a very, it was intravenous and intra uterine, oh. so I put a tube inside. So it was a very, very heavy chemotherapy, and most women don't go through the process of it. So I did in the most beautiful condition. Great team of doctors, my naturopath, my own, my own yoga, love around me, both stopped working for a year to take care of me. My kids came. The reason I'm speaking about this is because the reason the kids follow us. Mm-hmm. It's because because I was sick, all my kids came to live next to us with my grandkids. So one of them was in Paris and the other two were in Cairns. Right. So they moved to Western Australia to be close to me. Once again, Bob, very, with his amazing Australian style, just put the seeds in without seeing, you know, without making a lot of noise, invited mm-hmm. the kids, and then one of them had the revolution that they actually had to come in and then the other ones followed. And, and anyway. So we were all together there, the three, the three kids and all the grandchildren. And uh, so anyway, I pulled through it. Uh, I'm very well. I 
Rob, Rob is convinced that yoga saved me, but they were, my students used to meet once a week to meditate. My sister, at one stage, she worked in Africa. She had people doing voodoo and <laughs> Christians and Muslim. Everybody was praying for me all over the world. My nephew was doing um, sun dances and anyway. So all the... <laughs> any chance. I had a lot of support. <laughs> but Bob is convinced that yoga is what actually saved me, but it was a lot of other things as well. But once I decided to do it, not once did I cry or felt sorry for myself, I just went through the process. And what he said to me, you just have to get better. I know you can do it. I'll take care of everything. And he did. I keep saying to everybody, I don't wish anybody to have cancer, but I've had it in the best possible conditions. And when I think of it now, I only think of all the good that came out of it. And that brought the kids. So once we were together, the kids wanted to stay together. So when we decided that we were going to move here, they said, okay, we'll go too. Not the, my eldest daughter stayed in Perth, but the other the twins with the children came. So my decision of looking for a place was partly determined, or it was certainly affected in the fact that I had young children coming, you know, and that I wanted a place for the children, the children to, to have a happy, free, safe childhood. And I picked Signet, and they, they loved it. Signet has become a magnet for young families to bring up children. Yeah, and a lot of um, artists and... Yeah, but that was there before, yeah. you know? That's one of the factors that attracted me here. You know, the fact that there were lots of artists there. As I said, uh, when I looked at the way this uh, society was layered, you know, I wanted diversity, I wanted an interesting place. Um, so rural, then there were alternative people who came here in the 60s. Lots of artists came here. And then you've got, you've got more and more really conscious professional people who decided to get, get out of the rat race and make a difference, you know. People, these people who are doing all these, you know, um, permaculture stuff, they had other professions before. Lots of people who have had several lives come here yeah. and, and reinvent themselves. It creates such an interesting community. And I keep, you keep meeting them because they're a bit in the background. They're doing their own thing. Then you meet them. You know, so it's really interesting. And I love people and I love diversity. And it's not boring, you know. It's mm. really, it's all, there is always something happening there. I've got to protect myself. When I first came here, everybody opened up there arms to me, everybody inviting me everywhere. I said, do you want to be in my committee? Come to my committee, come to my committee. So, oh, so I pulled back because I had a very public life in France and I didn't want to be like that here. I just, I'm a bit on um, sort of a retreat and I need that. I'm still very engaged in, in the community, but I don't want to overdo it. So, yes, very, it's a very, very special place, very interesting place. For somebody who comes from Paris originally and who comes from, you know, she's really full on. <laughs> culturally special. This is a really interesting, this community has a really interesting culture and it's, and it's attracting for, you know, people from different cultures. Food is very important to me. I'm French. Food has always been a way of expression for me. I've studied in depth nutrition and different kinds of nutrition, vegetarian, non-vegetarian, Mediterranean, whatever. And when I came out, what was really important to be able to get good, fresh products, good quality food, you know, health was a big part, so fresh air, fresh water, you know, quality, quality of life, quality food, healthy stuff. When you've lived in different countries from your own, you, you, are, you, be, you belong to a new culture, which I call transcultural. You are not like the people who are still living in your country, who are not living in a, but you are not like the, the people you come, the country you live in. 
So you are in a, in a trans space, in a in-between space, in a liminal space in a way. And there are lots of people in that situation, you know, who live in another country than their country of origin, lots. And they don't deal with it all the same way. Because obviously you get some distance from a place and uh, your, your perspective on it sort of evolves over, over time of being away from it. And I was wondering how, whether there was anything in particular that you felt that had changed in the way that you, you now see your sort of country of origin. I've been in a process of evolution all my life, so it's very hard for me to quantify what Tasmania specifically has done. Probably, be, I feel at home here. So there are lots of there are lots of aspects of Tasmania that feels like Normandy when I came from. You know, so cheese, dairy, side, you know, apples, Calvados, cider. You know. So I feel at home there. I feel that it's, I created some roots here. Also by the fact that we lived, we bought a house here. The children came here. So now what's happened here? Something very important. For the first time since I've been living in different countries, we've actually bought a house and made some roots here. Mm -hmm. And this has become a family home in Australia. And my priority now is to take care and the custodian of this family home because for my grandchildren, this is similar to my birthplace. That which, so we have two family homes now, or three actually, in Busanemi, the little village, and in Signet in Tasmania. So, and my sister expressed that the other day because my sister has come here several times. And during the lockdown, my granddaughter came and lived with me. She's ended up with her boyfriend. She lost her job. She lived with me for eight months. We did leave the lockdown together. It was beautiful. My daughter, while she's waiting for house, is coming to live here. If Emma comes back, she's probably going to start coming here at the beginning. So this is I created a new some new rules in Tasmania and I am the custodian of the family home in Tasmania. So Tasmania is now roots because of the history of my grandchildren. They were very, very little when they came here. So their early childhood, not quite early yet. Didi was two and Arsene uh, was five. So, it's, you know, and they spent nine, nine years there. So eight years there and they're coming back. So that's, they are very formative years. And the souvenirs of Easter, Easter eggs in the garden and coming mm -hmm. here when they're sick and Christmases and Bob being five the Christmas, all these childhood family are now belong to that space. I spend a lot of energy, time and money trying to maintain this space, making it a welcome, coming family home um, and creating more food to feed them. Yeah.